Have you ever had this embarrassing experience? Oh, yeah, probably, yeah. You know, it's, it's the one where you were looking for something only to realize that you had it all alone. It's okay. This is a safe space. I'm going to admit for myself two different uh, times. I've, I've looked for my glasses while wearing my glasses. Just like that oh no moment where you don't know where they are and you're looking for them everywhere and then you realize like I can see really oh I have them on. Um, I've also looked for my phone only to realize that it's in my hand. And maybe you don't like to admit it but you probably had that experience as well. Uh, we've all had that like it was there all along feeling. Uh, it's actually become something of a trope in TV and movies uh, where the protagonist spends the whole movie, the whole two hours, seeking something only to find out it was there all along, right? So the, the family that she was after, it was there all along. She's been living with the family. The, the life that he always wanted is the life he already had. It was there the whole time. Now, it's, it's a little different, but in today's text, in Hebrews chapter 10, um, we're going to see that... The complex theology our author of Hebrews has been drawing out and building and explaining, that was there in the Old Testament all along. Right? We shouldn't be embarrassed by finding this out like we are when you know you've been looking for your glasses, wearing your glasses. Don't be embarrassed by this. Right? And it's and it's a little bit different, but it is a similar principle that it was there the whole time. For those who have eyes to see. And ears to hear. Christ's unique role is neither made up nor new. It was there all along. So stand with me and let's read Hebrews 10. If you can stand. If you don't want, like I realize, this is very different. Right? So if you're, if you're able, willing to stand, please do. Um, Hebrews 10, we're going to read verses 11 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us. Uh, In your word, thank you for air conditioning and just the common grace that that is. But thank you that we have a spot that we can meet. Um, Help us to treasure this time together. I do pray that you would use this time and make it fruitful and get our attention just through this change of of pace, this change of space. Get our attention and, and help us to learn from your word, to hear your word, and help us to glory in the fact that Christ and his coming kingdom, they're not made up. They're not new. They've been there all along, and this has been the plan all along. They were there even in the Old Testament times uh, as the anticipation and the expectation, and we have entered in 
to the glories of it. And yet it is not all that it will be. And so, Christ, we long for you. And we pray that you um, would, would make your word bear fruit in our hearts by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. Okay. So there's a great contrast in these verses. And, and maybe you picked up on it, maybe you didn't, but it relates to their posture. The posture of the priest in the Old Covenant and the posture of the new great high priest. Do you see it? There are the standing priests and there's the seated priest. In verse, uh, in verse 11, it says, every priest stands. And in verse 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. So we have the contrast between the standing priest and the seated reigning priest. Okay, let's look at the standing priests in verse 11 first. They stand day after day to perform their duties. Why? Because they're never finished. And they're never finished because they have to offer the same sacrifices every day. This is exactly what's said here. And the reason that they have to offer the same sacrifices is what? Those sacrifices that they offer, they never take away sins. They never fully, finally, effectively deal with sins. They don't remove them. Um, I'm going to share this quote in the newsletter tomorrow. It's lengthy, but I think it's really helpful for us. William Barclay is a commentator, and this is what he writes about when you look at that phrase, the same sacrifices day after day, this is what he says about that. And it's actually somewhat of a quotation of Numbers chapter 23. But he says, Every day, so long as the temple stood... The following sacrifices had to be carried out. And again, he's reading from Numbers 28, verses 3 through 8. Every morning and every evening, a male lamb of one year old, without spot or blemish, was offered as a burnt offering. So morning and evening. Sorry, I lost my spot. Uh, along with it, there was a meat offering, which consisted of one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour, mixed with a quarter of a hen of pure oil. That's hen, H-I-N, not hen the chicken. Um, there was also a drink offering, which consisted of a quarter hen of wine. Added to that was the daily meat offering of the high priest. It consisted of one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil and baked in a flat pan. It's a pancake. They made pancakes. Um, half was offered in the morning and half in the evening. In addition, there was an offering of incense before these offerings in the morning and after them in the evening. Okay, so those were the things every day the priest had to offer. Every single day. There, he says, Barclay says, there was a kind of priestly treadmill of sacrifice. There was no end to this process and it left men still conscious of their sin and alienated from God. That's what he's saying. This, this idea that they're constantly moving, but they're never getting anywhere. I think that's a really good illustration of the sacrificial system. And so you add to that de those daily sacrifices the other ones they would have offered for the people all throughout the day, and then the weekly, uh, monthly, and yearly sacrifices, 
And, and all of it adds up to perpetually standing priests. They're always standing. They're always working because under the Old Covenant, a priest's job was never finished. But then you move to verses 12 through 14, the seated and reigning priest. The seated reigning priest. Um, Albert Moeller in his commentary says this, How many times and in how many ways can the author make this point? Evidently, one time is not enough. We need to see this beautiful reality emphasized repeatedly. So the once for allness of his sacrifice, the fact that he seated the right hand of God, right, these things are repeated all throughout the last several chapters of the book of Hebrews. And he says, you know, maybe it's because we're forgetful people and we need to see it over and over again. Or maybe it's because we're going to praise God endlessly for it in the new heavens and new earth. So we can, we can stand some repetition of this, of this reality because this is the gospel in which we stand, by which we are being saved. So the author mentions what's happening but doesn't elaborate. He's elaborated on the like once for all nature of the sacrifice. It just says, when he had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, right? You, you look at, you, you, you juxtapose 11 and 12, right? Like you look at them with one another. So if you look at 11 and you look at 12, you're going to see the priests are standing and they're offering repeatedly the sacrifices. Christ is seated because he's offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. So let me just reiterate that this one single sacrifice was so effective that it ended the sacrificial system, it rendered the old covenant totally obsolete, and it established a new covenant between God and his people. That is an effective sacrifice. And by the way, it forgave the sins of all of God's believing people for all time, past, present, and future. That's an effective sacrifice. One sacrifice was sufficient to do all of that. But what's amazing is like he makes that point, like he's already made that point. He makes it here not to make that point, but to make another point, which is what he did after that. Look, look what he says. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. So he makes that point about the once for all nature of Christ's sacrifice in order to build on it and elaborate what's happening next, what the church for centuries has called the session of Christ. The session of Christ. We think about like a session of Congress. It's, it's like the 116th Congress is seated. That's a session of Congress. This is what's happening here. It's the taking of His throne. The seating. The session of Christ. He is sitting down at God's right hand. Okay? That shows us at least three things. It may show us more than that. In fact, it probably does show us more than that. But I've got three that I think are important for you to see this morning. First of all, the session of Christ shows the finality of His redemptive work. It shows the finality, the conclusiveness of His redemptive work. He finished His work and then He sat down to rest from His work. No repetition was required. I, I, I came across a quote this week. I didn't take it down. But it, was, it went something like this. If Christ had repeated His offering 
what would that say about the first offering? That it wasn't as effective as it should have been or else he wouldn't have had to re-offer himself. <coughs> and by doing that, right, it, it, it effectively nullifies whatever was accomplished in the first one. So there's no repetition necessary. In fact, to repeat it would actually be to impugn and malign the one that he already offered. If it's perfect, there's nothing else needed. No further propitiation is necessary for the people of God. It's final. He offered it. He did his work. He sat down. Okay? Number two, it teaches that there is a uniqueness or an unique. I don't know, actually, if that's supposed to be an A or an N. I like grammar a lot, but I'm not sure. So I'm just going to say A. Is A? Okay. I'm getting some knocks. Good. I'm, I'm glad for that. But it was from a physicist, so I don't know if we can trust that. Um, there's a uniqueness to his work. Um, as God's Son, co-eternal with the Father and co-equal with Him in glory, He did what only He could do. And therefore, He took His seat where only He can sit, which is at the right hand of the Father. No one else can occupy that place. No one else could have done what He did. There's a uniqueness to His redemptive work. So it shows the finality, it shows the uniqueness, and His sitting at the right hand of God shows His kingliness. His kingliness. Right? He's not seated on a stool or a bench in heaven. He's on the throne. You can look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, and you see that. We're going to refer back to that in just a moment. It's on the back of your... It's on the back of your uh, outline there. Right. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Unless you think, well, it says the right hand of the throne. That's not technically on the throne. Let me just point you to Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. Where Jesus says this to his people. The one who conquers. Right, this is Revelation 3, 21 on the back of your outline. The one who conquers. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. So th whatever the right hand of the Father is, it is equivalent with God's own throne. He is on the throne. He is a king. He is reigning. Okay. So it shows the finality of His priestly sacrifice. It shows the uniqueness of His person and His sacrifice. And it shows the kingliness of the king. He reigns from a place of unrivaled power and authority. Okay. So it says, verse 12, He sat down at the right hand of God, and now what's He doing? His work is finished. He's seated. What is He doing while He's seating? Look at, while he's seated. Look at verse 13. Waiting. Since His atoning work is finished, He is simply seated and waiting. Waiting on what? Well, here it says, waiting for his enemies. The time when his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. In other words, he's accomplished the work. And what he's doing now is he's waiting for the full effects of his atoning work to be realized. Like to come to fruition. And he's waiting on them to be revealed. So, realized and revealed. The full effects of what he purchased. He's just waiting as he reigns. 
he is in the process of subduing his enemies as the great king priest after Melchizedek's order. Okay. Now this verse, what's said in verse 13, his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. This is not the first time that we've seen th those words. We actually saw it in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. So if you look back at Hebrews 1, 13, Again, you can just turn there on your uh, outline. Hebrews 1.13. We've seen it in this book. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand right, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And what we come to find out when we studied that, what we did find out is that that's not the first time that that's ever been said. That was quoted in the book of Matthew when Jesus talks to the Pharisees about who he is. And that wasn't the first time that was quoted. That was written in Psalm 110. So I would like for you to turn to Psalm 110 for with me, because um, I'm going to read. I'm going to read the whole psalm. So you've got a few of those verses on the back there, but since I didn't make you turn to the other ones, I'm going to ask you to turn to this one, because what you're going to find out is that all the way back in David's time, David writes this psalm, and he is anticipating a priest and a king united in the same person. Right? This is what we studied when we studied these things about Melchizedek. But this is what David says in Psalm 110. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord send for, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will scatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head, subduing his enemies. That's right there. That's what it looks like. Look, he will execute judgment on the nations, filling them with... Corpses scatter the chiefs over the wide earth. God will subdue the enemies of this king priest who sits at his right hand. So this is not like... Hebrews 10 is not the first time we've seen this, but what he's doing is he's, he's taking that psalm and he's building this really complex theology of Jesus as that king priest prophesied, promised in Psalm 110. And we also see allusions to his, his enemies being made his footstool or sitting at the right hand of God uh, in Hebrews 8.1. We have such a high priest seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Hebrews 12.2 that we just looked at a moment ago. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. These verses are very important verses to our author. And, and it's very important that he shows and demonstrates that Jesus is this great king priest who was talked about in Psalm 110. He is uniting those two offices in one person. And this king priest intercedes for his subjects and advocates for them now in the very heart of heaven. So what we said a few weeks ago still applies. The reason any of us make it home, the reason any of us get all the way 
to heaven is not that we're awesome or that we are faithful, but it's that Jesus is interceding for us, keeping us faithful. Right? That's why we make it. Everyone who has ever made it, that will be the reason. Jesus intercedes for His people. And what's happening is that God is even now placing all Christ's enemies under His feet, making them His footstool. He will be doing this until Christ returns in glory. So let me, let me point you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is defending the resurrection against some naysayers. And he's just spent a few verses supposing what would be true if Christ hadn't been raised. And then he goes in verse 20, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. You can hear the language of Psalm 110 here with those chiefs scattered all over the world. He destroys every rule and authority and power. It says 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Christ will ultimately defeat and destroy all of his enemies, every ruler, power, and authority. And death, the final enemy, on that glorious day will be destroyed and overthrown, subdued. And what our author is telling us is Jesus is waiting for that day to come. As he rules, as he reigns, as he intercedes, he's waiting for that day to come. So the question is, why the delay? So why not just come back immediately after he raised, rose from the dead? Like why, why not just let that be the coming, gather your people to yourself, and then be done with it? Well, that was a question that was being asked in the New Testament times. Um, sometimes it was cynical, and sometimes it wasn't. But in 2 Peter chapter 3, you, you get Peter, the apostle, answering that question. Where's the promise of His coming? I did some on this in the newsletter a couple of weeks ago. But this is what he says. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-10. through 10. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. 
right in the middle there, number nine, verse nine, what you find is the reason, the reason for the delay. The reason for the delay is God's patience. He is patiently calling sinners to Himself so they would repent and believe. He wants everybody to repent and to believe. God's patience that leads to repentance and salvation. So this is why uh, there's a, I forget where it is, but it says at present we do not yet see everything in subjection. But one day we will. But He is even now subduing His enemies. He's waiting for His enemies fully to be placed under His feet. So, just an interesting thing. Uh, you know your podiatrist? Like, that's a foot doctor? P-O-D? Pod? That's like, the, that's like the prefix for foot. Podiatrist is a foot doctor. Um, well, the, the word there for footstool is, is a compound word, just two words taken and put together. One is hupo, which means under, like, like when you have hypothermia, right, your, your temperature is dropped low. Hupo. Uh, and then podion. Podium is like this, but it's for, it's like a, it's, P-O-D is the root of that, right? The podiatrist. Hupo, podion. Under feet. Like the footstool was called an underfoot. And so when you see, he's talking about, I'm going to put all your enemies under your feet, saying I'm going to make them your footstool, it doesn't work exactly the same in English, but it does in Greek. It's underfeet. I'm going to make your enemies your underfeet. That's what he's doing. He's going to do that. Christ is going to kick back and prop his feet up on the necks of his enemies. Your ruling, reigning priest king. So verse 14 comes in, in Hebrews 10, and it, it, it introduces a reason. It says, For... By a single offering, He's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The reason He's seated and waiting is that His sacrifice was perfect. In its very nature, it was perfect. He offered a perfect sacrifice. And so perfect was that sacrifice that it actually confers its perfection onto those who trust Him. God is pleased to give them that very perfection. It has perfected them, that offering. So, three things about that perfection. Number one, it is objective. It is objective. It is not open to interpretation. It is not a matter of opinion. If you believe in Christ, you have this declared over you. That's good news. That is, that is encouraging news, is it not? For weary sinners like us, that's encouraging news. God has declared you perfect, complete, whole, mature. It is unalterable and it is unimpeachable, this declaration that He has made. It is objective. This perfection, here's a, here's a different word. This perfection is forensic. Forensic. F-O-R-E-N-S-I-C. Forensic. I'm using this in the old sense of that word. The legal sense. It's a court declaration. Like justification. We are declared by God in His public court to be every bit as righteous and perfect as Jesus Himself is by virtue of the sacrifice that He offered and nothing else. It's objective. It's forensic. It's a legal declaration. 
the last thing on that is it's an already and not yet reality, this perfection. And we actually see that working in verse 14. Isn't it, it, the language is interesting, right? He has perfected those who are being sanctified. We might, we might can substitute a word there for being sanctified. We might can say being perfected. He has perfected for all time those who are being perfected. What? This is a mystery of the already and the not yet. We are sanctified. We've talked about that last week. We are sanctified and yet we're being sanctified. We're saved and being saved. We're perfect yet being perfected. So let me just encourage you by virtue of what he says here. Your standing with God never changes even in your moments of sin. Never. Out of love, He confronts and disciplines you in your sin? Yes, He does. We're going to get there in Hebrews 12. right? If you don't share in discipline, you're not His Son. But it's out of love, out of His loving character that He confronts and disciplines you in your sin And what he does when he does that, if you're his child, is he leads you by his kindness to repentance. And through all of that, so meeting you in the midst of your imperfections and your sins, he never stops viewing you as what you're going to be on the last day, which is what he's declared over you for all of your life. You're perfect. You're perfect. He, He never stops viewing you that way as perfect even as he gets in there and rolls up his sleeves and gets down in the muck with you to pull you out of your sin and your imperfections and to change you, he never stops viewing you as perfect. That's amazing. Like That's encouraging to me. The master potter is perfect in his ability to see, to have a vision for what He wants you to be and then to get you there. He knows every movement, every revolution of the wheel, every movement of the hand, every pressure point to place on you the clay, He knows how to get you exactly where He wants you to be. And where He wants you to be is the most perfect version of you. Namely, you made in the image of His beloved Son. He's doing that in you right now, even as He sees you for what you will be. Your your call is in a very real sense to grow up into what you already are. You have this perfection declared upon you, and the Christian life is just you growing up imperfectly into that. Yes, sometimes it will be painful and unpleasant. Let me ask you, you ever watched an artist work with clay? Do you think that that's a pleasant experience for the clay? Like they slap that thing down there and they start hitting it and they, they push and they tug and they pull and you know, sometimes, they, this, sometimes they just, you know, like smash it down and re- start over, right? But like it becomes something beautiful through all of that pressure and pain. Through all of that unpleasantness, it becomes something better than it was. And then it's like, it has to get put into the fire to get to really become useful. It's got to go through that fire. Like, 
But the master potter all along has a vision for what he wants it to be. And he's perfect. He is 100 for 100 in his ability to get his people where he wants them to be. There's never been one of his people who did not fully finally realize that perfection on the day of glorification. None. He will not forsake the good work that he has begun, but will carry it through all the way to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6 He who began a good work in you. Paul says, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. The forensic objective declaration upon you because of what Christ has done then is the basis of your welcome before God's throne and it is what keeps you boldly approaching His throne of grace when you've sinned and it's what fills you with courage as you imperfectly pursue the path of sanctification. God declares you perfect and then puts that declaration to work in you so that it brings about what God wants from you. He has perfected those who are being sanctified. So it is objective, it is forensic, and it is already, and it is not yet. We are already perfect, and yet we're not all that we will be. Praise God. Because everybody here is a work in process. And everybody here, if we live 10,000 years, we're going to need His grace as much on the day that we die as we do right now. You will never outgrow your need of His grace. Okay, so we see, stepping back for a minute, we see the standing priests, we see the seated priests. And we see whose work is better. Like, we see it. It's clear. Here's the thing. Verses 15 through 18, you know what they tell us? It was there all along. Verses 15 through 18 tell us it was there all along. So what the author does now is return to Jeremiah 31. We've, we've actually looked at this back in, I think it was Hebrews 8 or 9. Um, but if you'll remember back with me throughout Hebrews, we've seen the author use the Old Testament in different ways. But I think this is really great and really interesting one way that he's used an Old Testament psalm is said, you know, when, 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 when David writes, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, right? He says that was the Father speaking to the Son in the Old Testament. Well, last week, when Jesus came to do the will of the Father, he says when he comes into the world, he says, behold, I've come to do your will, O God. So he says that was the Son speaking to the Father. And now... If you look uh, at verse 15, what does he say? The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. So what we've seen, like, and then he quotes the Old Testament. So what we've seen is the Father speaking in the Old Testament. We've seen the Son speaking in the Old Testament. And now we see the Holy Spirit testifying in the Old Testament. This touches on two major doctrines that we believe. So let me encourage you in these doctrines. First, the triune nature of God, that He is three persons and one God, co-equal in glory, co-equal in majesty, co-equal in eternity. Father, Son, and Spirit, one being, and yet three persons. A divine, holy mystery, and yet precious, and it's there. 
It was there all along, right? So it's, what are you saying? It was there all along. Also, the divine character of the scriptures. That it's not just this work that was produced by random weirdos in Palestine in thousands of years ago. Like, it was men chosen by God, filled in some way with His Spirit, and moved through their experience and through their own wording to, to produce these things so that we can accurately call it the Word of God. It's God's Word. God is the ultimate author of the Scriptures. And we can see that in a number of places. 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11. Just bear with me a moment. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. So the Spirit of Christ is the one predicting the subsequent glories and the sufferings of Christ. Second okay. Peter chapter 1, just a few pages over, verses 20 and 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So who is responsible for the production of Jeremiah's prophecies? The Holy Spirit, who carried him along. Jeremiah spoke from God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for, reproof, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. <clears throat> the author of the Scriptures is God Himself. Okay? This is teaching us that. Now, with what we've talked about, the standing priest and the seating priest, the seated priest, um, when you read that and then you read Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31 actually may feel out of place to you because it doesn't talk about a priest. And it doesn't talk about standing and sitting. So like how, how, are, how are we arguing then that, that this quotation means it was there all along? <clears throat> well, the logic goes something like this. And let me just tell you, our author is swimming in the deep end of biblical interpretation right here. Okay? So everybody get your floaties. Let's, let's look at it. The logic goes something like this. The Holy Spirit spoke, testified through Jeremiah of these very things. Namely, the end of the sacrificial system when the new covenant achieved the goal of real forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> so what we learned... Is we know the blood of bulls and goats under the old covenant could not take away sins. In other words, they're not forgiven. And if in the new covenant, God will remember sins and lawless deeds no more, in other words, they are forgiven, then it must follow from that that there is a better sacrifice that will supersede and displace those sacrifices that couldn't take away sins. If under the new covenant, sins are forgiven, there's got to be a better sacrifice than those. And so his point here in quoting Jeremiah 31 is that for all who are or were reading it closely, all these things are there in the text of Jeremiah. The Holy Spirit is foretelling 
the end of the perpetual standing priest and the glories of the seated one in Jeremiah's day. Now, the significance of, of the fact that that was there in Jeremiah's day, that, that might be lost on us, right? But let me tell you, if you put yourself in the shoes of the original audience, these Jewish believers who were under the threat of persecution and who were being tempted to revert to Judaism away from Christianity. Imagine being told those priests are standing always because they're offering ineffectual sacrifices. He is seated at the right hand of the Father having offered one sacrifice for all times and really taking all time really taking away sins, right? And by the way, it was there all along. It was there in Jeremiah. I can show you in Jeremiah where I'm getting this from. I can show you in Psalm 110 where I'm getting this from. That significance would not be lost on them. They would say, this is not a new thing. This is not a made up thing. It was there all along. Do you see the significance of this? The Holy Spirit was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words... He's telling these believers what you have and what you've entered into, this is where it was always going. These things that you, that you can see, that you came out of, and that you're being tempted to return to, these things were always meant to be temporary pointers to the ultimate thing, and you have the ultimate thing. Don't go back. And later in chapter 10, and in chapter 11, and in chapter 12, what we're going to learn is actually that, that to turn back is to trample the Son underfoot. Like That's what he's going to talk about. We don't want to do that. We want to bow at His feet. We don't want to become His footstool after trampling Him underfoot. And so what you see it in His last statement, verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these. Of what? what right before He said, there's sins and lawless deeds, I'll remember no more. Where there's forgiveness of these... There is no longer any offering for sin. In other words, Jeremiah himself is anticipating the finality of Christ's sacrifice even in his day. It was there all along. It was there in Psalm 110, which anticipates a king priest forever, like Melchizedek, but who's seated at God's right hand and whose enemies will be his footstool. And it was there all along in Jeremiah who promised the full forgiveness of sins and thus the end of sacrifices that couldn't do it. And this text in Hebrews has taken those two pieces of Scripture, Psalm 110, Jeremiah 31, and our author has masterfully blended them together um, to show a more comprehensive picture of Christ who fulfilled both. And so what we have is that Jeremiah 31 and Psalm 110 are giving us a deeper, uh, more more comprehensive insight into Christ's role. And then Christ is actually giving us a deeper meaning and insight into those texts. It's this beautiful interplay of Old and New Testament. Anticipated in the Old, realized in the New for God's glory and our joy. And it was always there. I pray that you have confidence just hearing this. The fact that there's such internal harmony within the Bible that Jesus is not this like completely new thing that would, that would be unheard of to the men who wrote the Old Testament. But it would have been like they were searching and they were inquiring and they like that's what First Peter says. They wanted to know when and who 
and it was revealed to them, no, no, you're not saying these things for yourself and for your generation. You are sowing seeds that will bear fruit in generations to come, for millennia to come. Right? They, they wanted it. They didn't get that the way that we do. They were serving us. It was revealed to them they were serving us. So I pray that seeing this actually gives you confidence in the truthfulness of the Scriptures, in the reality of the Gospel, in the, the veracity of God's own promises, in the reliability and the trustworthiness of God Himself. In other words, you can bank the full weight of your eternity on Christ and you will not be put to shame. You will not be disappointed. Jesus is the seated king priest that Psalm 110 was expecting. And his was the sacrifice to literally end all sacrifices as Jeremiah 31 was expecting. So just like my glasses were there all along and I didn't know it, so even more gloriously, this was always the expectation of the Old Testament. So glory in it, thank God for it, and confidently live your life for this Savior who has perfected you for all time, even as He's now sanctifying you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time that you've given us in your word. Please use your word to shape us and grow us and help us. Uh, help us to uh, repent of our little faith. God, would you build up our faith? Help us to repent of the sins and transgressions that we have that are against you and against others. Lead us in your paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And help us to trust that you are with us always, even in the darkest places, in the darkest days. And, uh, and give us confidence to continue coming before you even in our imperfections, knowing that you have perfected us and you are perfecting us. And that on the last day, you will fully, finally perfect us. So we make this prayer through Christ. Amen.